They always say start with a joke. So I have a really big book. So you're going to be here a really long time. All right, the other part is I got really bad eyesight, and this is a large print book. <laughs> so it is that. So let me figure out how to make this. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Cool. You know, uh, in my in my in my secular life, I uh, grew up a telecommunications engineer. I am the worst person in the world with technology. So maybe it's because I started off uh, with tubes and working on teletypes, and I just never made the transition. Who knows? But. The Lord is gracious, and he's very kind, and his mercies endure forever. And he has me up here because of his mercy. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then I will try to explain to you what the Lord has put in my heart, and it's quite a big apple. The Lord, I just asked, as uh, Matthew has just prayed, that the words and the things that are said today honor you and that as you have taken the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise Lord I pray that what you have laid out in your word would edify you and help the body these things I ask in Jesus name with thanksgiving so the topic is the Beatitudes and really the topic is bigger than that it's the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount is five, uh, is from chapter five through chapter seven, and it's quite an expansive story. But then the Bible is an expansive story. It's the story of love. It's the story of man's fall, God's love, then God's providing the redemption and the way to, re to reconcile himself back to his created. And what we see here is God in that big story taking the next step by providing his son, God in the flesh, to talk to his children. And so with that background, I have four, I'm going to take a, a question approach towards this, but there's a sermon in there and there's a method in the madness. So... I'm not going to read all of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But I am going to take significant parts, and I would ask that you follow with me. So many of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe, maybe not. But to set it up, for those of us who are going through the book of Mark, you see Jesus starts his ministry and he starts, doing, um, he starts doing miracles, and he starts getting all these great crowds following him. So there's a point where he ends up going to a mountainside, and he gives these three chapters. And out of that, in studying this over the last three weeks, I found four big questions to try to approach these three great chapters. The first question we're going to say is, who was the people 
of the audience that came to hear this. The next question is, why were they there? The third question is, what did they want? And the last question is, what did Jesus give them? When you look at it like that, I think all these sub-stories have a great theme. So looking at that is, who was the audience? Well, we know that the book of Matthew was written to the Jews. And primarily when I think about that, I said, well, who is the audience? And so I came up with three things. The audience was the Jews, seekers, and people looking to relieve themselves from the yoke of the Romans and of the world in a greater, greater sense. And we see that when we look at Matthew chapter 4, building up to the multitudes. And Jesus went about all of Galilee. So this is Matthew chapter um, 4, verse 23. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You can see there's a big, large group of people in the physical sense. And then we move into the actual sermons. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. So let's look at this now. So who was in the audience? There were the people who were sick, the people who were lame, the people who were broken. There were a whole multitude of people. And if you think back, even in the Exodus, when Matthew was teaching that, there was a mixed multitude. There were those who believed in God besides the Jews that left in the Exodus, but there's also the people who came, I think, was not just all Jews, but there were seekers. There were religious people. There were a whole multitude. And you say, well, what has that got to do with us today, 2,000 years ago? Well, look among you. Look among the people who are in the world. There's a mixed multitude of people who are seeking and need to know from God for a host of reasons. Because they are sick. Because they are lame. Because they are oppressed. For the reasons that go on and on and on. And we see 2,000 years later, that hasn't changed. So who were the audience? They were the religious. They were the people under the yoke of the Roman government. They were under the yoke of the world. And you say, well, how do you say there were religious people? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, I'll read that to you right quick. For I say unto you, unless... Your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when you have heard 
So you say, well, that doesn't make sense that, that that's your proof for religious people. So the people there knew about the Pharisees. They knew about the religion of the Jews. So why I use that, that is just to kind of show you that there were all people and there were very religious people who were coming to hear Jesus. This is very important because this sets up the other questions and why the different parts of the Sermon of the Mount. Because a lot of things that you're going to hear are in direct response to things that people had already knew. So on the Sermon of the Mount, you think about it, the people are going to hear things that they had heard before, but they had never heard it from the voice of the person of God. So what did they, so, so why were they there? Well, they were there because they wanted relief from the physical, relief from the cares and the oppression of living. And we see that because, as I told you before, in Matthew chapter 4, there was a list of the type of people who were there, and they were there because Jesus had healed so many people. We studied that in Mark, and when he started, he healed. But then people came just to be healed. But what did he do? He started talking about the kingdom and about the good news and about the gospel. So some were there for healing, but others were there because they wanted to hear the word of God. Why else were they there? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, they were there because they wanted to understand what does the law have to say? And Jesus said in verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, so shall they be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, they were seeking, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is this, this, this thing? You have this great man who came and healed all these people. So I'm going to go out into the mountain and I'm going to start teaching them. And what was he teaching them? Was he teaching them what they thought? Was he going to teach them about an earthly kingdom? Or was he going to teach them about a heavenly kingdom? I contend that he was going to teach them about a heavenly kingdom. And we're going to see in these, in these three chapters some very critical points of understanding that you need to understand and understand how they fit and why they were there. And my third question, what did they want? I think many of them wanted the physical kingdom. They wanted self-dominance and power. They were looking for the physical. And we see that if you were to turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and you say, well, that doesn't look intuitive when you talk about do not judge. So, 
What were they there for? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the, what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me remove this speck from my eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your own brother's eye. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense with what you just said when I asked the question, what were they there for? Well, when you look at the word judge, you'll do a deeper study in it. It actually means taking on the role of God. And you say, well, still, that doesn't make sense. Well, there were people there that wasn't there for Jesus. They were there because they thought that Jesus was going to give them the keys to the kingdom of an earthly kingdom. In other words, they were looking for an earthly king and they wanted to be a part of the power structure. And they wanted to be a part of the, 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 the movement. And yet Jesus talks about, you don't want to be a judge because of these reasons. And I'm not going to, I'm going to come back to that, but I wanted to just kind of give you a sense of what I'm thinking about in this big picture. Christ has just started his earthly ministry. He's still unknown to them, but he introduces himself through healing. And how many times have we asked or prayed to be healed? How many times have we asked for prayers for other people? How many times do we think that the most important thing is to have our physical needs met? We're all human. We want these physical needs. And through this sermon on the mount, Jesus contradicts, but he also reveals what the people really were there for. The people were really there for what they could get. They weren't there for God. And Jesus counterintuitively exposes that through these little vignette stories that you see. And I'm going to try to answer some of these questions. And so the biggest section of my sermon is about the last question. What did Jesus give them? So we know what they came for. I think they came for the healing. They came for the kingdom. There was religious people in that group too. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious people that were in that group. It wasn't just all the poor. If you look at what John the Baptist did, the predecessor announcing Jesus, you'll see that there were all kinds of people from the, from the, from the lowest to probably some of the highest, at least in the religious standpoint. And so they were all there. And Jesus had something for everybody there. So let's look at what they asked and what Jesus gave. And parenthetically, think about your own life. How many times have we asked for things only to think that what we got was not what we asked for, 
But because God is gracious and all-knowing and loving, he gave us what we really need. And that's one of the biggest takeaways from here. You may ask, but God, because he knows, actually gives you the better, even though you may not think it's the better at the time that you receive. So let's look at what Jesus actually gave. So what did he give them? He gave them hope. He gave them comfort for the present and the future. He gave them insight into the mind of God, which is probably the best thing he could give them. But in giving them insight, he gave them warning. He gave them a pathway to God. And he gave them the introduction to the spiritual kingdom, which is the thing that we, 2,000 years later, need more than we need anything else on this earth. And you say, well, how did he do all these things? And where did he do all these things? Jesus is a masterful storyteller. He's the masterful writer. He's the masterful everything. You know, sometimes I dabble in and I have an idea that I'm going to write something, and then I figure out how badly I'm at it. And yet God is gracious so I don't, I, 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 for three weeks, I tried to say, how do I talk about this thing? And I don't. All I got to do is do what Matthew has been teaching us, and that is expound on the sense of the scripture. And God will do the rest. My job is to open up the scripture to you. It's not to tell you what I think. And so the first thing he did was he gave them hope. He says in chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the son of God, sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so can you imagine all these thousands of people coming to the mountain thinking Jesus is going to say okay we're going to storm this thing here we're going to take this we're going to do this we're going to we're going to we're going to put out our video message we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to get all the people to vote for us and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to set up this and, and then he talks about Blessed are the poor in spirit. Huh? I thought you were going to tell me how to storm the Bastille and get rid of the French or get rid of the president or fix all the climate change. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All of us who have lost a loved one or have dealt with mourning, having a comfort is the greatest thing that we need. And there's no government, there's no program, there's no nothing that can fix a heart that is broken. Only God can fix a heart that is broken. You see how Jesus gave them more than they had bargained for? They certainly weren't looking for that, I think, in my opinion. And yet he provided that. He provided words of hope 
and comfort and need. He provided them what they really, really needed. Insight into the mind of God. In these other parts of it, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its favor, how shall it be seasoned? He's given you the mind of God towards your purpose in life. He says, do not think I came to destroy the law. So for the religious leaders, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it and show you that it is good when applied correctly and with the intent of love. He said, I did not do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, not one jolt, not one tittle, not not by the will of any means shall pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whatsoever therefore breaks Whosoever breaks one of the one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. This is a direct look at the Pharisees and the teachers to whom much is given in responsibility. It is a privilege to be up here to talk to you folks. It is a it's the greatest privilege in the world. It is not a right. It is a privilege. And heaven forbid that I teach you wrong. And that's the point that Jesus is telling the religious leaders who were in the crowd. You have a great and wonderful responsibility, but judgment will come on you if you do not teach the spirit of the law. The law is not evil, but you, by converse, they know in their heart, they have perversed the law and have turned it into something that it was never intended to be. He talks about how murder begins in the heart in verses 21. He starts dealing with the heart. So they came to get the plan to take over the Romans. Then Jesus starts talking about the heart. He starts talking about you. Jesus goes away from the abstract of, of the Romans and all of that and the earthly kingdom. And he starts talking about you. He says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said of old, ye should not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks at a woman and lusts in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is totally counterculture. Huh? That is totally against the junk that we see well, I'm married, but as long as I'm just window shopping, there's no problem. You know, there is a problem. You took your heart away from the woman that you promised would be yours and yours only. So he starts messing with the heart, which is the part that needs fixing more than anything else. Don't worry about the Romans. Don't worry about the politicians. Don't worry about the media. First, look into your own heart because they're only going to give you what you want. The reason we have the, the corrupt entertainment we have is because we pay money. They, 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 
Martin Sheen, when he got kicked off some show, he went and did a road show, and they showed on the news. The guy was mad at me and said, well, he knew what kind of person I was. That's a spiritual answer. You got what you paid for. So when you pay for athletes to act a fool, and you keep buying the tickets, I'm not saying athletics is wrong, but as long as you are giving money to them, they say, well, that's cool. That's what Jesus is talking about, the heart. He's talking about how marriage is sacred. Furthermore, it is said, whosoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you, whosoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That is counterculture. That is hard-hitting. That is at the heart of the sinfulness of man. Because in, the, in this Sermon of the Mount, he's going right for the gut. He's going to the most difficult part. They came looking for the physical. He goes straight to the spiritual. Because out of the spiritual comes the issues of life. In chapter 6, he talks about prayer and doing good. This is totally counterculture. He says, take heed in that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Man, that is totally upside down. If I can't get my IRS um, cut, then why do I want to give? That should never be in the equation of those who love the Lord. It really shouldn't matter whether you get a nickel back from the government or not. That should not concern yourself whether or not you give. I mean, they give it to help promote it, and that's fine. But that shouldn't be your motivation. That should not be your motivation for helping somebody who you may never, ever see again. I remember being stuck in 1977 somewhere and I couldn't read German and I missed my train and I was I was lost as Hogan Goat and this poor this German man just gave me enough money to get back on the train to get back home. I never saw that man again. But God sent him to help me. So as we talk about it, as we go, let's have our eyes open and and our ears open so that if God brings someone across our path who needs help, don't worry about whether they are, are gay or look funny or different skin color or any of those things. You can, deal, you can deal with that later. What you need to deal with is meeting the need. God brought them across you for a reason. He died for the whole world. God so loved the world. So we should be doing our good because our Father in heaven, he says right here, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before as hypocrites. Do it, do it in the synagogues or in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, 
they have their reward. But when you do a charitable do, deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Not on the IRS form, blah, 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 blah. And that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You see how they came to get material thing and God said, no, 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 no. You should do what you do without saying a word. And you should just go about your business. You don't even need to tell somebody in a prayer testimony. Oh man, I gave so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. As far as I'm concerned, you did wrong. You just do it. You help people and you move on about your business. God who sees all, he got it covered. You don't need to worry about it. You need to do as God has said. Then we learn about prayer. We learn that prayer is about praying for the things that God cares about. So when you look at this prayer, the prayer is focused, as we do in our morning service, on God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your, your place in heaven. He will take care of you. But your prayer has to be what God has told us to pray, pray about. Then we look at our treasures and where our heart is. Verse 19, do not lay up yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where the thieves break in and steal. But lay up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So Jesus had just got about talking about prayer, about praying the spiritual things that God wants you to pray. Those are the treasures that you lay up. But we have HGTV, we got my lottery home, my you name it. Uh, America is, and I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying lay up what doesn't rust. I got to fix the gutters on my house now. See what I mean? Yeah, I'll get it fixed, but that's not where my treasure is. Because that junk is going to rust and break up and go away. So they came looking for the physical and God turned them to the spiritual, to the things that last eternal. That's the theme of the Sermon of the Mount. And then lastly, he hits two very core parts, parts that every one of us is guilty on. You cannot serve God and man. You cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one or love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and your education. 
You cannot serve God and your job. You cannot serve God and your family. You cannot serve God and even being a part of a charitable organization. You cannot. God is a jealous God. It is all God, all the time, all the way. But he then says, I know you have these things as needs, but seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And all these other things will be added unto you. He knows we're weak. He knows we're humans. He knows we need clothing. He knows we need a place to sleep. He knows all those things. But he says, you come to me first. And everything literally will trickle down. Because I own everything. And I know that you need these things. I'm not against that. I made this world. So, duh, I got it. But you've got to turn to me. And then he says, don't worry. That's where I kind of jumped ahead. He says, therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life. What about uh, what you will eat or what you will drink? Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worry can change one cubic of his statue? In other words, which one of you can think yourself an inch, a millimeter, or, or anything taller than what you are? You can't. And then finally, he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. Ask that it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives, and he who finds him who knocks, it will be opened. So the thing that you need to look at when reading these things is Jesus brought them along deeper and deeper and deeper sequentially in these three chapters. Because he doesn't open up with people who came looking for another meal, looking for a physical kingdom, and say, okay, all you got to do is ask and knock. Because they would have equated that you ask and knock for more physical. No, he talked about seeking God first. He talked about the Lord's Prayer he talked about all the spiritual things. He talked about not asking to be God. Then he talks about seeking and asking. So you got to think it's, it's, it's sequential, yet it's not. That's why I had such a hard time trying to pull one verse out of this. I looked at it, my head was exploding. It's the whole sermon. He brought all these little pieces parts like the engineer and then he gets to the the crowning part so at this part he says now you ask and seek so what are you asking what are you seeking you're seeking Jesus you're seeking him and finally I finish with this and he didn't do it in this section but he does later 
He brings it to a point in Matthew chapter 11, which is sort of the summation of my sermon. In Matthew chapter 11, I got this big book and now it's sticking together. I know it, the verse, but I want to say it correctly. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At the end of the day, Jesus is telling them, you sought the physical, but you need to seek me. Because I am weak. I'm sorry, I am lowly. I am meek, but I am all-powerful. But I am those things because you can't handle. And all of us have burdens. All of us are, this afternoon have something. We might go out of here this afternoon and catch a flat. We may go out this afternoon and get a bad phone call. We may go out here this afternoon and, and anything. And we have an instant burden on our heart. But Jesus says, come unto me. Take my yoke. I love you. I got it. But you got to come to me. You can't come to yourself. That's the message that he gave them. They couldn't understand it all. Just like we can't. But in the big picture. God set man out there. He messed up. God fixed it. He brought his son. And he said, come to me. That's the message. If you don't know Christ today, or if you do know Christ today, we always need to be reminded the words and the power and the love that Jesus has shown us. It has not changed in 2,000 years. It will not change in 10,000 years. It will not change in a million years. It will never change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will be forever. That's the message. I don't have anything new, but I have the best part because Jesus gave it to us. So that's the message this morning. We have a moment of contemplation in our service and then we will have the uh, morning service. I mean the, uh, the, the circumvent. And if you don't know Christ as your savior this morning, seek one of the elders. Seek out Matthew, seek out Mark, or even seek out one of the other members here. 